Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to Dan Egan, better known as Ig. In 1986, he started Ig Boarding Shop. At the time, he was competing in big wave surfing, but there really wasn't much money to be made in it. So he thought, instead of trying to be in the contests and scraping by, maybe he'll just make surfboards for all the surfers that he knows. His surf shop soon blossomed into a full retail store, and for 25 years, Ig made and sold his own surfboards, skateboards, and snowboards. In total, he hand-shaped about 4,500 surfboards, thousands of skateboards, and about 1,500 snowboards. But what he really wanted was to make enough money so that he could go surfing and snowboarding. So every year, he would take weeks and months off work to ride. And as snowboarding got bigger, Ig found a new place to explore, Valdez. Those early days of riding Thompson Pass saw heli rides for as low as $15, $20, and $25. It was a common occurrence at the time for anyone riding that area to get a first ascent. And they were doing it with no guides. They'd ride mountains all day long. Diamond, Python, Stairway, Hogsback, Billy Mitchell. And then party all night. It was a wild time, on and off the mountains. And in the middle of all this, Ig, along with my dad, Scott Liska, were pioneering surf spots out of Resurrection Bay. At the time, most people they talked to about surfing in Alaska told them that it was impossible. It was just too cold, but they were determined. Ig tells the story of the first time they found surfable waves out by Latouche, Elrington, and Montague Islands. It was Ig, my dad, and Giles and Sebastian Landry of Turnigan Hardcore, and the waves were barreling. My dad checked the fish finder for depth and water temperature. It was a little cold for the wetsuits they had but they jumped in anyway. The first wave Ig caught was a triple barrel. It was only about a foot overhead, but it barreled right over the rocks. Over the next couple years, they would find about 25 surfing spots. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber. Seward Brewing Company. The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau. Derek Adolph, Sharon Liska, Jake Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Borderline Legacy. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine.
That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Ig. He says that his outlook on life comes from his relationship to surfing. That the unique thing about surfing is you have to trust your own judgment. To be optimistic. Because you're relying on so many unpredictable things. The weather, the tide, the wind, the swell. Because when you paddle out to the spot, sometimes it's flat. So you hope and you dream that it starts pumping and a perfect wave is on its way. That's the hope Ig carries with him throughout his life. When he was just a kid with the idea to start a surf shop, when he came to Alaska because he heard Valdez was the north shore of snowboarding, and then when his shop closed after 25 years of business, and then he transitioned to the weed industry. So here he is, Ig. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! They called me Ig because my shop was called IG, like Ig Boarding Shop. Yeah. And what Ig was, was that, you know, I was way ahead. Like, you know, there wasn't even a brand even close to a name like that. And Ig was... um really meant from like the punk rock rebel early snowboard days of like ignorant mm-hmm, you know okay. society was ignorant for not allowing snowboarding on the mountain I, I would get kicked off all the different mountains and i'd have to go back and you know get with the ski patrol and sometimes they'd they'd call the police on me and sometimes i tell them you know like okay so you don't want us to come out of the binding you know like <laughs> i mean or, or you want us to come out of the binding i said then we're going to lose the board and then they were like so anyway, Ig was was that it was a definitely a a cutting edge name, which you know ironically everyone would be all what's Ig, and it became my nickname because my last name's Egan, and then uh, later on it became like oh, holy crap, like look at uh, you know now it's uh, Instagram, you know, became this name that everyone's all like oh my god, it said Instagram sold for a billion dollars <laughs> at one time, and I'm like well unfortunately I didn't get any of that. Yeah, I should have copywritten it. Yeah, well, I did have a copywritten, but for for like different things, trademarked on more like surf and snowboard related stuff, and then okay, they wiped okay. out my my uh, a lot of my uh, information. Like I had a website with thousands of videos and stuff, and when I shut down the website, all the videos were still going because they were in you know in the history or whatever. But then. Uh, Later on, when Instagram took over, they basically wiped out everything or like pushed me to the bottom. A lot of stuff is pretty much all gone now. I can't even find. Dang, okay. Yeah, you know, they like just made it like I was non existent. So you have to really want to find it. Like you can do igbs.com slash Mikemo or YouTube Mikemo, which was a big pro skateboarder and rode for me. And, and then it'll pop up. But it's like there's very limited stuff left. 
you were talking earlier about getting up onto these uh, these ski resorts and snowboarding. You have a story about riding Mammoth Mountain in those early days, right? Like they gave you a chance to prove that snowboarding wasn't this out of control thing. Yeah, a lot of the mountains. I originally started at like Mountain High and SoCal and and Mount Baldy. And uh, there's a little mountain called Mount Waterman, which pretty much allowed us exclusively to ride there. Mm-hmm. But once we got up to the uh, up to the big mountains, you know, like Mammoth and Tahoe, they were just like not a chance. You know, I would get on, I would buy a lift ticket or get free lift tickets and go up on the get on the chair, and they'd be looking at me. And by the time they realized I was getting off at the top, they usually had ski patrol chasing me down the mountain. Really? Okay. <laughs> and then they would, you know, basically start freaking out on me, and I'm just like, did I look like I was in control? You know? Yeah. And then it it took a bunch of years. Um, Boreal and Tahoe started allowing it and i was the Mm -hmm. first person to get like the uh advanced pass where you couldn't like the originally you could only go on this little like horrible chair (laughs) (laughs) and i was like okay this is ridiculous like i can ride the whole mountain yeah so they they let me on the uh the whole mountain up there and i wasn't even anywhere near like a local of that area so i got that pass but then i started to try to go to mammoth and mammoth like I said, they would they would threaten to arrest me, or sometimes I would go on the you know chair with my kids, and it'd be enough to get on, and then they'd get off at the top. But then uh, one time I was there, and I I said to the guy, "Look, I'm in complete control. You have to realize, you know, I've been selling snowboards for a couple of years, year round." Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. said, "There's places up in you know like Mount Hood, up in Oregon, with summer camps and." things like that. I think those had started already, but uh, maybe not. Uh, But what happened was I said, like, why don't we go up to the top and I'll show you guys what I can do. It's a perfect day. There's powder. You know, I can traverse. I can make it down the run in full control. And when I fall, it doesn't matter that you don't come out of your board. It's safer that way. If one one foot came out, you'd be in horrible trouble, kind of like skiers when they lose one ski. Yeah. I said it's actually safer. Um, and even prior to that, we were doing where we were snowboarding, where we had the board that had no bindings. You know, it just had mm-hmm. straps. So you would actually come off the board. And I'd be like, well, we can do it either way. You want us to come off the board or you want us to stay with the board? Yeah. <laughs> and they were, you know, real against it. So then one time, it was it was about like 1987, I believe. And they uh, the guys hey, this ski patrol guy happened to be listening to me. He's like, hey, get on there. He's like, I'm going to take this guy up. So then on the gondola, I said like, yeah, we should go down Hangman's or something like really gnarly Kular. Yeah. Super like 55, 60 degrees on the entry part and a cornice. And the guy's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm just going to have you come out of the you know gondola station here and just the main run climax. It's pretty much our mid-level it's a little harder than say cornus but it's mm-hmm. no bad in case you fall you know just stay in the middle and he's like, i want to see you do like controlled turns and then ride down as far as you want maybe stop at the bottom once you finally get down there i'll come and catch up to you so i just went and i literally just rolled in virtually straight 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. after like a hundred yards i just cranked a big toe side turn and then a big front side car was probably going like 70 miles an hour 65 70 (laughs) and i just like blowing big surf turns and then did a big sole arch at the bottom and then i stopped at the bottom like got a huge face shot to like show the guy you can stop quick and everything and then yeah he did he did his hundred little ski jump turns down the run and <laughs> finally came down and was just like wow dude that was impressive he's like let me see on the rest of the run so like i came across the run and well first thing he said he's all well maybe we might let you surfers up here <laughs> and i tried to tell him hey it's going to be a lot more than surfers it's going to be families it's going to be kids or girls like everything guys it's going to be the whole world and yeah it's like an evolution of you know life and changing and you guys should be ahead of the curve instead of behind it. So then he said, let's cruise down here. And I went down like this one kind of groomed area with some moguls. And I, it was funny too, because back those years, we didn't really have much in the way of snowboard clothes. So I was still wearing like ski type pants and I'd wear like gaiters (laughs) on my boots and I'd duct tape my Sorrells, you know, which gorilla tape took over the duct tape world, but we'd tape our, boots so that you wouldn't get as much heel lift Mm -hmm. and then uh so i'm riding these kind of ski pants cruising along and and i get into the moguls and i start doing these little mogul skiing type (laughs) turns (laughs) and then i busted like a backside 360 and then a frontside 360 (laughs) came back around i did like a 180 and back then our boards were kind of flat in the tail and i kind of caught and fell and then I got up and then he came up to me and he's like, wow, are you okay? That looked crazy. And he's like, well, how does it feel when you fall? And I'm all, it's like nothing. It's actually probably easier than uh, skiing because you don't get all twisted up. And mm-hmm. so then we just rode down to the bottom side by side and we got to the bottom. He's like, Hey, I really appreciate meeting you. It's cool. I got your shop name. And if you guys ever want to come up skiing up here, we'll put you on the shop list and we'll give you free ski passes. He's all, but as far as this surfboard, snowboard, whatever you're calling it thing, he's all, it's probably going to be another year or two, but you know, I'm really okay. impressed and he's all, we really should let you guys on the mountain. Yeah. And then, uh, I told the story off to some of the locals up there and, uh, Ronnie McCoy was Dave McCoy, the owner's son. He was, uh, getting involved in snowboarding and Steve Clawson mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, uh, Somewhere between some of the the stories I had and some of the guys with uh, Dave McCoy or uh, uh, the McCoy's son, um, Ronnie McCoy, uh, I got wind the next year they were going to allow it. So I went up there on opening day and got my pass and I got up to the chairlift and the same thing happened again. They're like, hey, you're not allowed to have those up here. I said, no, we're allowed now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You just mentioned... Steve Clawson, who is the owner of Wave Rave, the right. local shop in Mammoth. How close were you, all of you uh, shop owners? You know, you being a surf shop and skate shop owner, Steve being a snowboard and skate shop owner in Mammoth. And then eventually, you know, you met my dad, Scott, and my uncle Jay in Alaska with Borderline. Yep. So, yeah, what basically happened is I, I opened my shops in 1986 and I was actually selling uh, snowboards back then I was okay. riding Sims boards and, and, uh, I picked up a couple Burtons at the time. And, uh, 
Steve Clausen hadn't even opened Wave Rave till probably four years or so later. I'd have to check the exact dates. Um, so I I knew he was like involved in pioneering that area and stuff, but I was definitely several years ahead of that. And we kind of were, you know, we were about five hours south, so we were in SoCal. So it started really to be with like Tom Sims was with like Don Zabo and myself and this guy, mm -hmm. Victor Coyne. And we, we all would ride Mount Baldy, Mount Waterman and Mountain High. And then later on, I think about like 88 or so, Tom Sims came up and dug out the, maybe 87, dug out the half pipe at, at Snow Summit, which was the first half pipe. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, then it was a couple years, maybe two years after that was when Mammoth opened up. And then uh, the way I met Steve Clausen was a funny story because, yeah, I'd started coming up to Valdez for the King of the Hill. Yeah. And I knew Nick Parada. And Nick was like, hey, uh, aren't you, don't you surf for Quicksilver? And I was all, yeah, what's up? And he's like, well, tell those guys they should sponsor the contest and and uh, we're going to have a bunch of bands play and all this stuff. And I'm like, what bands are you going to play? And he's like, we don't really have any bands yet. And I said, well, hey, I'm real tight with Pennywise and Offspring. My buddy okay. Rick DeVoe was was the manager of some of those bands. And, and uh I said, Hey, I could probably arrange to get some bands to come up. I'll, I'll get with Quicksilver. We can bring up the banners. I'll make sure the pros at the time was like farmer and, mm -hmm. uh, Ox and Andy Hetzel and Sean Palmer even. And I said, I'll make sure all those guys come up and have the gear. So I came up and I met Nick and Nick was like, yeah, let me introduce this guy, this guy, Scott Liska. And he's got like this, a uh, Cadillac limousine with like yeah. a giant boom box in the back and a bunch of guns. And, uh, and then I met Scott and, and, uh, Nick and I, I, I brought up, uh, Pennywise. Okay. On that very first year. And, uh, that year then, you know, we had some radical things we could talk about more, but, uh, the, the way I met, um, after the contest was over and, I think that was the year, or maybe it was the next year. I think it was the second year of King of the Hill. Uh, Julie Zell and Steve Clausen won the event when Nick had the um, ESPN and all that up there. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, everyone partied hard that night. It was crazy. We've got to talk about that more. But uh, I woke up in the morning, and I'm like, I'm going up to the pass. And right, everyone's probably hung over. And I went out on the road to hitchhike by the totem, and first car comes and it's Clausen and Julie Zell and they picked me up and uh, we became friends. I became really good friends with Julie. I still keep in contact with her to this day and we had a lot of good times and and Steve's still running his shop up there in Mammoth so hats off to him. And what did that parting look like? Oh, the king of the hill was crazy. We had uh, the the first year it was like um, could have been the second year, but one, one of those early years is uh, Rick DeVoe wanted, said, hey, I got this new band Offspring. You should check them out and see if they want to come up. And they came up and and uh, Fletcher from Pennywise. And uh, we would go out in the 
first off, the helicopter was, you know, $25, no guides, <laughs> no transceivers. And you'd be like, you got a shovel? And everyone's like, no, I'll use my board. And they're all, you have a probe? And they're like, no, dude, I'll just dig quick. And you don't even have a Jeez. shovel. And I'm all, I got a transceiver. They're all, a lot of good that's going to do with do you. Yeah. <laughs> I will find you when you're dead. So then we would get the little, there was a little bubble helicopter the guy brought up. And Bubble Man would pick us up in town fly us up to the pass and one day Fletcher went out and he went snowboarding and and Fletcher's a real big guy you know okay and he was like the next day uh Don Zabo and Dana Nichols took the helicopter out to film for a movie um out in the Santa Valley and they were shooting shotguns out the windows had all the doors (laughs) off they're shooting shotguns while they're flying the helicopter and one of the shell casings went up into the rotor and seized the thing and it just dropped out of the sky and crashed on the mountain oh and, uh, the luckily none of them died but like yeah. bubble man like unbolted his seat he didn't have a snowboard and he just strapped his seatbelt around himself and he like butt like glissaded down the mountain Huh, okay that's wild. So that was the end of bubble man we always said you know uh fletcher killed the bubble copter and everyone was like damn that guy he only charged like 15 dollars for a run which was insane <laughs> that is insane and then uh the partying at night would be crazy like this i believe it was the second year i had offspring come up and it was their first like tour out of california and fletcher's like okay so here's the deal from Pennywise, he's like, okay, we're going to go in there. He's like, okay, Ig, grab this spray bottle. I'm all, what's in here? He's like, I put vinegar and Tabasco sauce in here. And I'm like, what are we doing with that? He's all, just listen up, be quiet. I'm all, what are you doing with the surf leash? And he's like, I'm putting this electrical cord on there. And I'm like, wait, what are you doing? He's like, fuck, I'm hungry. Is there a machine out front? Like, we got to get some food. So he like, go out front of his room and he like tips over the whole machine and oh my gets all the snacks out of the thing. And he's like, okay, we're going to drink some shots. I'm like, dude, we just drank like Jägermeister, like freaking uh, tequila. I go, now you want to have more shots? And he's like, yeah, we got to have more shots. And then he's also, we're going to bust in the room of offspring. Oh, an unwritten law was up there too. He's also, we're going to jump. We're going to bust in the room. He's all, you're going to spray them all. They're going to be asleep. We're going to spray all their faces with this Tabasco pepper sauce. Oh He's my all, gosh. then I'm going to wrestle them to the ground. I'm going to tie this surf leech on them, plug it into the wall on the light switch. And I'm going to electrocute them. And he's all, and while they're doing that, you're going to throw all their shit out the window. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm like, no way. So I'm cruising down the hallway with my beanie on and I had had like blue dreads at the time and they were like bleached out to kind of like blondish green. And I'm like, fuck dude, luckily there's no cameras in this hallway. And uh, cause Fletcher's like, dude, look at this fire extinguisher. He's all grab this and he (laughs) takes the fire chemical fire extinguisher, breaks open the door, goes in, sprays the whole room with this fog while I go in there spraying with the pepper and some of the other roadie guys are holding the guys down and they're running out of the room. Well, that showed, so the next day, the Nick Prada calls me over. He's like, Ig, dude, what happened last night? I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he's like, dude, some shit went down. They fucked up the whole room, the totem. 
And I'm like, he's all, you know, Fletcher. I'm all, yeah, I know Fletcher. He's like, well, I think Fletcher was involved. I'm all, no, dude, I was with him all night. Nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) And he's all, well, they trashed the hotel room. So I had to go tell Fletcher and Fletcher's like, whatever, let's just call Epitaph Records and make them them pay for it. He's all, we're, we're, we're fucking rock stars. So like a year later, Nick Parada calls me up and is like, dude, did you see the Pennywise home video that came out? I'm all, no, I haven't seen it. He's like, you got to get a copy because he's all, you're all over it. Breaking into the hotel room. He's all, no one ever paid that bill. It was like $8,000. I'm all, let me call Maggie at Epitaph Records, which was old friends of mine from the punk rock days in LA. Yeah. So that was kind of some of the stuff. And then another time, I think it was the first year, we were in town, it was like Richie Fowler and your dad, and they're like rolling around with, they got like, Richie's got a bunch of handguns on him, and and uh, your dad's got some shotguns. Oh, and they're all like, you ever shoot a handgun? I'm like, yeah, I shot a handgun. He's all, I'm like, what is that, a 22? And he's all, no, try again. I'm all, how about, that's, oh, it's a nine mil. He's all, no, bro, this is a 10. This is a Mac 10. <laughs> And he's all shoot off a couple of rounds. I'm all right here in town, like right by the fucking bank. Oh. <laughs> then your dad's like, I gotta go to the fucking bank, get some money. And he like goes over there. We're all loaded. He used to drink a lot. He, yeah. Dad had to quit. He had to quit drinking because he was raging so hard. I think he went to the doctor, and they're like, he's all, what's wrong? He's all, all your guts are going bad. You better quit drinking, or you're gonna die. Yeah. That's, he'd always tell people, how'd you quit drink? Why'd you quit drinking? He's all, my guts were bad. Really? Okay. <laughs> like a true class. Never really explained what even that meant. Yeah. <laughs> so your dad goes over to the Bank of America and they have the little like uh, teller where the little like bubble tube comes across and you put your money in there and shit and he pissed in the in the tube. <laughs> I've heard this story. Yeah. <laughs> sent the money, sent the tube back across. <laughs> oh my God. You know, what did you think when you know you're witnessing all this stuff was this on par with what you were used to back at home or was it crazy yeah it was crazy but being from from la like we had hollywood and you know it went from like skateboarding pools and surfing where like people rode like single fins and cruise to where like the 80s hit and we were we were hitting you know, like skateboards with looser trucks and we were catching air. Yeah. And we were like riding our motorcycles with no license down to Hollywood and seeing punk bands. So we saw a lot of riots and radical stuff. So I was just yeah. like, wow, dude, this is the first person I ever seen out of Hollywood that I go, the Liskas, man. I'm all, I got to hang out with these Liska guys. <laughs> fucking cool. And then this other guy's, all, oh, you know, you like Liska? And I'm all, yeah, fucking the guy's cool. He's all, which Liska? I'm like, I don't know, that Liska guy. And he's all, I'm a Liska guy. And that was Jay then. Okay. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and Jay's all, I'm the real Liska. That's old man Liska. And at the time, we were pretty young, but he still called his brother old man Liska. <laughs> and uh, so those were fun times. But, uh, the craziest thing was we would go up to the pass, you know, and the night before you'd have to go over to Nick, Nick's place in the totem and be like, come on, Nick, like, what do I, I brought up all this quick silver. He's like, you're going to set up banners. I say, okay, well, quick silver said, I got to set up some on the top, some on the bottom and some at the middle. He's like, perfect. We're going to have photographers and, and like guides and shit. And he's like, yeah, what do you know about snowboard guiding? I'm like, I've been to Europe. And he's like, oh, you've been to Europe? 
He's, um, I actually never snowboarded Europe, but I've been here. <laughs> and then he's all, you know any life savings and shit? I'm like, dude, I'm a lifeguard in Tavarua in Fiji. But like, same deal. I was a lifeguard there, but I never actually got any of the certification. We were okay. big wave riders and stuff. And then he's like, you got a shovel and a probe and a transceiver? And I'm all, yep, I got all that. But I didn't have a probe. I just had a shovel and a transceiver. Okay. So then he's like, well, I got these poker chips. I'm like, Everyone gets poker chips. Here's like five chips. He's all, that's like one a day. And I said, what's these all? It's a helicopter lift. Am I get one fucking run a day? Like, are you serious? He's all, yeah, you better call up Quicksilver. Tell him to send up more money. So then I would be like, come on, Nick. Give me a, he'd be, okay, well, here's three today. So then I had another guy that was supposed to come up with Quicksilver, and he didn't actually make it, mm. Paul DeLancelotti. And he didn't make it for a few days, so I kept telling him, well, I need Paul's chips, too. So I was getting six chips a day, so I could get six heli runs a day. <laughs> and then I'd get up there in the morning, and then they'd get on the heli. He's like, and I, they'd be all, yeah, chip up. And I'd be all, oh, I'm with Quicksilver. I got all the banners. I don't have any chips yet. Yeah. I mean, you got to talk to Nick. So I'd get up to the top, and I'd set up the banner. And then they'd be all, okay, well, we're going to fly down to the bottom. And they'd be at the bottom, and then I'd be like, fuck, they're at the bottom, dude. I'm going to ride down there. So I would ride down <laughs> to the bottom, and they'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, and I'm like I, I, I needed to be at the bottom. You guys got all the banners. I just set up a thing at the bottom. Why'd you leave me at the top? I figured you wanted me to ride down. And they're like, no, yeah. dude, we don't want any tracks up here. And I'm all, I went over to the side there. And they're like, okay, cool, whatever. Get in the helicopter. We got to go back up to the top. I'm all, yeah, I need to set up one on the middle. So the next thing you know, I'd get like two runs with no chips. Yeah. So it was super fun. And uh, then at night, we'd go, everyone would party. We'd have like the pre-contest meeting and all that and and uh you know everyone would just be getting wasted and yeah and uh then the next day we went up and we went up to like python like upper python like my first run up there in valdez and i'm like holy shit walking on this knife ridge top going fuck dude like does anyone have any transceiver like no one had transceivers no one had shovels and then they're like yeah we're gonna go do this run stairway so we go back to stairway nick's like yeah I, me and my buddy named this a couple years ago and he's like yeah look at that that's mount diamond okay and yeah. i was like "Fuck, dude that looks crazy i'll never fucking go down that run <laughs> well the next thing you know like three days later you're up on the top of diamond sure, with no sure. guide no guide no transceiver and i'm like "Fuck, it's a blind rollover into these huge shoots and i'm just like Wow, dude, all I know is there's like two huge chutes and then there's like a bunch of cliff bands on each side. I'm just going to roll down the middle. Yeah. And then they're like, well, radio me when you get to the bottom. And I'm like, the bottom? Like, what good's that going to do? I'm going to be at the bottom. If something happens to you, give it up. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I got this little Motorola radio. And they're like, you don't have a real radio? I'm all, no. And they're... So we only had one radio, one transceiver, and one shovel. Okay, okay. <laughs> It sounds like you really fit in. You know, you weren't put off by the craziness, the uh you know, the first ascents. You know, you you were right in the mix. Oh yeah, it was uh to me it was like I was a big wave surfer, so when I was 18, I went to the North Shore and surf pipeline and sunset, Waimea, 
all that. So when I got up to Valdez, I was like, fuck, this is like giant waves. And mm -hmm. only if it avalanches, are they moving? Surfing's way gnarlier because the water's moving, the tide, the wind. And I was like, this is a cakewalk. And everyone, guys like Nick Parada would be like, fuck yeah, dude, let's go up in the airplane. I'm all, what do you mean in the airplane? He's like, yeah, the airplane lands up on the top of the mountain. I'm like, no fucking way. <laughs> and he's all, yeah, 15 bucks, bro. I'll take you up there and we would go land up on Hogsback, like across from Meteorite mm -hmm. with the airplane. And, and I remember like Nick would be like, there's a giant wind lip down here. He's like, I'm going to ride down to that wind lip and hit it. And I was like looking at it going, fuck dude, that's like a 40 foot wind lip. Like what's he going <laughs> to, like, I thought he was going to do a big surf slash and Nick just points it straight at the thing and hucks like a, 60 foot backflip <laughs> disappears awesome. and i was like what the fuck and then i was like so i like rode down and slashed it looked over the edge i'm like fuck dude he went straight the whole way that yeah look at that guy never gone straight on him so then i started wanting to like point it and stuff and then mm -hmm. then i was like hanging out with your dad and he's like he's like we should ride a bunch next year he's like come up for the the king of the hill nick will put you in the contest tell quicksilver you need like five grand and we'll just burn it up on helis all the time <laughs> and then i think it was the second or third year they said you needed like a guide to go up on diamond okay okay and it was like 35 dollars. so uh chet was up there the first year i think the second year too he was flying the helicopters and he was the original pilot up there and he had, they had their whole like safety protocol and do your helicopter certification and all that. And I'd got up there early and hit at ABA and, uh, you know, years later we we're flying with Dean Cummings and, uh, and Doug Coombs, mm -hmm. who was like my favorite guy to be with. But anyway, with Chet, he would be like, all right, where do you guys want to go? We're like that peak up there. You ever landed there? He's like, nope, never landed there. He's all. We gotta go get some branches. He's all get some branches. We're gonna tie a little string on it. That way I know which way the wind's blowing. When you guys get up there, stomp it all out flat and then stick some branches on the edge. And I'll know how to get up there. That's yeah. like our LZ. I'm all what's LZ's on the landing zone. And and then he'd be all fuck, you guys really wanna get so we got up there and he'd be on the head so you guys really wanna get out up here? <laughs> and we were up there on like like some of the like a pussy fart or whatever off of cherry and okay we had all these different names you know people had busted out names of and and i remember one time with uh i think i might have been with your dad that time where chet's i'm like he's like you guys really want to get out and he was like fuck yeah he's like you guys are fucking crazy i'm all what do you mean we're crazy on dude you're crazy for landing the helicopter out here he's all no you guys are crazy for getting out <laughs> <laughs> and then he had that accident a couple years later where the plane the the ship went down and the okay blade like broke through and cut his front of his foot off yeah okay okay and i think he was uh he retired after that as far as i don't know if the faa allowed him to fly anymore up there those years mm -hmm. were were amazing and then what happened was is i was so into it and so like fit in with the alaskans even every year i'd come up go to your guy's house in anchorage Mm -hmm. or i tell your dad i'm in valdez and he's like you're supposed to come to anchorage i'm like, yeah but i landed and they said flight going to valdez and i knew you weren't going to be there for three days so i just went up anyway <laughs> <laughs> and then uh 
uh, I would, what my plan, what, what I would do generally after a couple of years is I lined up with the film crews and me and your dad would meet up and I would basically fly up from SoCal. I'd usually stop off in, uh, Mount Baker, go see mm-hmm. the guys from LibTech and GNU and work on some boards and graphics. I was making boards, my own brand, which was 1685 mm-hmm. through LibTech. I was the only, uh, uh, individual to have a brand, you know, boards being pressed through them. So I was designing shapes and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. doing like really big side cuts for like big mountain riding. And I ended up riding with uh, standard films and hung out with Temple Cummings. So that kind of nourished that, uh, nurtured that relationship. So I'd go ride Baker with Temple, make design boards with Pete Sari a couple times, Jamie Lynn doing graphics and stuff. And then I'd come mm-hmm. up to, to Anchorage, meet up with your dad. And then we'd roll up to Valdez and, and, uh, it was funny. Cause when he quit partying, I was like, not really partying anymore, but I was smoking weed. Your dad would be all, yeah, roll up one of those joints and blow it near me. I like the smell of it. <laughs> He's all, we shouldn't, but I ain't smoking that shit. And so we just drive the whole way to Valdez and we just play music and he'd be, all, I don't like talking. He's all, you LA guys talk too much. He's all, just fucking smoke that weed. Listen to the music. <laughs> chill out. He's all, chill out. Like my kids say, chill. He's like, I fucking hate that word. He does all, hate what? that word. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what do you mean you hate the word? He's all, my kids always say, Jake's always going, chill, dad, like chill. And he's like, fuck, I don't chill. He's like, I just go. He's like, I get up, I fucking snowboard, I snow machine, I'll surf, fucking freeze, take the boat out. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, he hates that so word. So then when I got up, yeah, he hates that word. So then we would get up, then we'd get to Valdez and we became good friends with, uh, Lisa Wax at the Sena. Yeah. So I'd, she'd usually get me a little cabin up there. And a couple of years I slept under the pool table when she closed down right in the bar. Mm-hmm. And I just like hide my stuff. So no one knew I was in there. And, and then, uh, we would, or we'd stay at the totem or somewhere, a little motel. And then me and your dad would just ride and people would be like, where are you going to go today? We're like, we need two people to ride with us because it was just us two. <laughs> and you needed four people for the heli, right? Yeah, you needed four later on, sometimes five. But we'd be like four of us, and and they'd be all, well, you need a guide. Well, we don't need no stinking guys. No, you have to have a guide. And we're like, mm, okay, okay, whatever. And then the guy, so we started riding with Mark Newcomb and this guy Theo who passed away that had rendezvous. Mm. He was a good friend. We were up there the first year he came into town. It was like a... And Doug Coombs and mm-hmm. uh, Doug used to love riding with me and Scott. So he would be like, all right, where do you guys want to go? We're like, we want to hit diamond like 15 times in a row. He's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's all, we want to do, well, we want to do, and he'd be all, how about Billy Mitchell looks really good today? We're all, yeah, let's go do 10 runs on Billy and then five runs on diamond. <laughs> He's like, there's no fucking way you guys could do that. So me and your dad did like 10 runs on Billy Mitchell one day. And then we finished off the day up at like 40 mile and Doug's like, yeah, you got to come down here more. I'm all, no, there's little spines all down this. We could ride any of this shit. And he's yeah. like, I don't, I don't think so. He's like, I'm going to have to rescue you fuckers. <laughs> and Scott's like, if Ig saw it, it's probably good. I'm going to go with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And then we would just go no guide, like, 
meet you at the road. And then, uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. And then, uh, we went out with Doug, one of the major stories with, uh, well, actually we ride with Dean Cummings, me and your dad. And, and we were out and Dean was filming, uh, back in like the books and we hear across the radio, fuck, Dean's down, Dean's down, we need help. Mm. Everyone fly over. And he, there was like this double step cliff that people did before, or he did. Um, and Dean wanted to like air the whole thing. And it was going to be like over 100 feet. Okay. It was like a 60 footer and like a 40 footer. And he was going to air the whole thing. And he came up slightly short and the skis hit and it bucked him forward. He broke his legs. Jeez, okay. I got his ski boots, so we were like stranded back there. Uh, me and your dad and this dude Ira, and then when we ended up leaving that day, your dad's like, "Let's go do hogs back," and, <laughs> and they're like, "Dean said we shouldn't do hogs back." They're all Dean. Dean made the wrong call. Your dad's like, "We're doing hogs back." We had this dude Ira who was like a doctor. Okay. And he wasn't really even that good. And we got up there and like hogs back had this weird snow. And then your dad's like, we're going to ride this funnel. It's like lookers left the hogs back. And Ira went down that thing and it was like so scary. You look back at it. You're like, I'm surprised no one ever died. Like we were all pretty lucky that no one, no one died with me and your dad. We outran a lot of avalanches. We had wet slides. We would like jump up on the rolling snow and ride the big giant snowballs. And they'd be all oh, look at these. And I'd be always to your dad, dude, you should come surfing with me someday. And he's like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so that year, the, I think that was like 94. Uh, we had the twins, uh, Giles and Sebastian. Giles and, yeah. Yeah. And Sebastian, Sebastian, the redheads, they big iron workers. They, let's go surfing. So your dad had the 26 foot Osprey. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, dude, we're going to take that out in the Arctic ocean, like a hundred miles. Like this thing is kind of small <laughs> <laughs> and then, then thin, you know, it's a production boat. And yeah. We went out and the waves first were too big and the engine was like iced over. So we like would run hot water across the engine. Oh my gosh. Okay. Then we got the, then we got the engine going. And we went out the next day and it ended up being like completely flat. And we went down, we were heading down towards Montague and we hit this one stretch Latouche and Ellington Island. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like, look at the waves are going the other way. They were like a Southeast swell. And I'm all turn the boat. Let's go that way. We're driving with the boat. And then I'm all, what's that on the beach? Your dad's like, looks like a bear. Get out the binoculars. So I got the binoculars and I'm looking out on the shoreline at the bear. And all of a sudden the boat like lifted up big and I looked to the right. Whoa, that's a swell. Look to the left and this like peeling barrel was coming in. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I'm all to your dad. Fuck, that's a wave. He's all, that's a wave. He's all, you can ride that. He's like, isn't it a bunch of rocks there? I'm all, yeah, but it's barreling right next to the rocks. I'm all, throw the anchor down, boil some water. Yeah. He's all, you're surfing. He's all, Ig surfing, boil some water. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Because everyone told us wherever we went that you're going to die. You're going to make it like 20 minutes in the water. They're like, you're wearing a dry suit? And well, no, a wetsuit. So I went out. I, I, I was got all my wetsuit on. I drank a bunch of hot tea. And I was thinking like, okay, boil some water. I'll just get nice and warm. Which is kind of a mistake. If you get too warm and hit that water, it feels like even colder. Okay, okay. But I said to your dad, like, turn on the 
I'm all, Scott, turn on the fish finder. What's the water temperature? And he's all, you ready? He's all, 39.9. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit. I thought it was going to be like 45 or something. Yeah. I'm like, 39. Like, so I paddle out, and like my first wave, I got like a triple barrel. And then the really? second wave, okay. a barrel. It was only like a foot overhead, but it was this, like this place we have super tubes where it just runs right along the rocks and. I'm screaming and Sebastian starts putting his suit on. Your dad's like, fuck, I'm surfing. He's like, I don't know, man. I don't even know if I can stand up. <laughs> <laughs> so we all surfed and then the tide turned and he warned me about like the currents are bad when the tide turns and it's yeah. like 18 foot tidal swing. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. I surfed in France. It's like the same. And all of a sudden the boat like swung around. He's like, fuck, we got to get to the boat. And, him and Sebastian start paddling on the boat. I got like a really long wave. Uh, I decided like I'm gonna catch another one and they paddled back to the boat. And then I was like, oh, I should probably go back to the boat. And by the time I started to go back to the boat, the current was just ripping. And I'm yelling to them, pull up the anchor, come pick me up. And they're just like, <laughs> just paddle. And uh, next thing you know, I'm paddling, I'm caught in this riptide, I'm getting sucked out to sea paddling as hard as I can. I'm like freezing by now. And I got to the boat and I like my feet and hands, everything were so cold. I was wearing gloves and booties and a hood, but I only had a four three that year and a, and five mil booties. And later on we realized you better get like a six, six mil. (laughs) It sounds like you guys were all just like figuring all this out. What was that like? You know, you're, you're out there, kind of pioneering these surf spots you're jumping out because you recognize that these waves are surfable and my dad and the twins are like let's do it you know let's be prepared you know with the hot water just in case it's too cold i mean just all of this is all coinciding at the same time what was that like Uh, it was awesome that's kind of what i pride myself on in my life is uh more than trying to be a professional surfer that wins contests or snowboarder. What I was into was more the exploring. And like when I was a kid, I went to Europe and I saw the Matterhorn and Zermatt and remember asking my grandma, what are those people doing with all those ropes and gear? She's all, they're going to the top. And I'm like, no way they're going to the top. Mom, can you ski down that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I always wanted to like find places and then surfing. I was boating out at the channel islands and, finding surf spots to this day that haven't even been ridden. So when, when Scott said you should come do it in Alaska, I was like, yeah, I'm on that. Let's do it. So I think after, over the course of the next couple of years, we found about 25 spots and your dad's a uh, favorite zone. We called Liska land because there's like five different breaks in this one area. And back in the first year of fishermen at the fishing tackle shop told us you should check out this one area it's uh i've seen really nice breakers over there Mm -hmm. and we're like where are you from he's like i'm from san diego i know what a breaker looks like (laughs) (laughs) and he's all but you're gonna die surfing out there and and then we're like anyone ever been bit by a shark he's all no one's ever been in the water (laughs) (laughs) so so then that one a couple years later then your dad's like i want to get a real boat so we started look he was looking at boats and then we heard there was a boat up in valdez the viking Mm-hmm. So we took the we took the boat and we surfed out a Seward, Bear Glacier, Bear Harbor, whatever, and then we went down to Latouche, Ellington, Montague, 
and then we boated up into the sound and ended up to Valdez and we had like our surfboards, our snow boards, fishing gear, crab pots, shrimp pots, mm-hmm. shotguns, rifles. <laughs> and we pulled in, we, we seen the Viking and your dad's like, that's it. I'm taking that. So I got to call my wife. She's got to figure out how we can get this thing on credit. <laughs> Sharon's worked in the financial world and was good at getting credit for Scott and and then he's like, all right, honey, I'm buying that boat and I'm going up to Valdez. I got some checks. And she's like, there's no money in the checkbook. He's like, what does that matter? I can write them, can I? Oh, my gosh. That sounds <laughs> so like him. <laughs> yeah, so we go up to Doug Coombs and he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't do checks. And Scott's like, I'm a local. He's all so zig because you got a discount if you were Alaskan. So yeah. I tell everyone I was Alaskan. <laughs> and then he's all, you take checks. And they're all they don't bounce are they he's all does it look like it's rubber he's all, he's all, it only bounced if it was rubber right oh my god and then he's all, i'm all what are you gonna do he's like i'll figure it out later how i'm gonna pay him <laughs> and then that so i became real we became real good friends with doug coombs and that was like the best ever because he world champion extreme skier pioneered all the big mountain riding about yeah. like not stopping on the slope and going down and we love that and when the conditions were right he'd be all there yeah, this is what you're not supposed to do but what you guys used to do well we all used to go at the same time like, let's go all of us boom and we almost and we try to trigger avalanches and scott's like ig likes to ride the steep shoots and Doug's all the coulars and we're all what's that he's all it's a shoot it's just what we call them coulars and we're like okay well um, I like to go in the coulard and like rip a big heel side turn and get the whole thing to slide and he's all like the slough I'm all no like a full-on avalanche and then I get in front of it and I like to turn and then I like to slow down it's almost like the barrel's coming and then when it hits me I lean way back and then it like spits me out like a tube so we went up rfs and uh actually your dad was like i'm going to town i'm over it and i went up back up with the guy menace and we dropped in rfs which meant really fucking steep Mm -hmm. and i went on like the westerly slope and i like got myself into like a smaller avalanche and like got spit out of it and then i was like fuck we should go back up there it's so hot right now can you believe how hot it is and menace is all like yeah it's really hot and we were down on the road and the helicopter landed on the road and we're all let's go back that we were with this old guy jerry from aba that was like a legend jerry's all i love riding with you surfers menace is all i don't even surf but like he's all yeah you and scott i'm all i'm gonna teach scott how to surf but (laughs) he doesn't (laughs) surf yet so he's all yeah let's go back up there and then he's all let's just ride the main face so i said yeah we were saving that so it looked like no one hit it so he's all go first, Ig. He's all, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to ride way out to that big, like, fin in the middle. And I'm going to rip a big turn on that bank and then just point it while I, I start going towards that fin. And right as I rip the front side turn, I did like a small little backside turn and then a front side turn. And then the whole thing fractured like 150 feet across, mm-hmm. like five and a half feet at the crown in the center. And I'm on this giant plate of like a hundred foot long, 200 foot long section. And I'm trying to angle to the left 
and the snow starts breaking up around me mm-hmm. and I'm like tripping going no way. And then I like felt like a, a dropping down and I'm looking and all of a sudden I'm like weightless because I was going the same speed as the big slab. Okay. And then this freaking wave came behind me. I saw it coming like where it, it loaded up and it just buried me. And now I'm going like, you know, a hundred miles an hour down this like 50 degree slope. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it's about 3000 ish feet, 2,500 that, that slope. And, uh, I literally just got tumbled and flipped. And all of a sudden I'm like, go, I came up on top of it and I'm like backwards on top of it. And I can see menace and Jerry on the top of the mountain. And then I just boom back down under it, flip, turn, wretch. And then uh, I like lost my hat. I lost my goggles. I lost my glove and the snow started like coming down into my collar of my jacket and filling up my jacket. It started like ripping my backpack. I thought my shoulder was going to break. And the whole time I'm reaching down because my board was like an anchor and I'm trying to undo my bindings to get off my board. Yeah. And then, and I'm like, all of a sudden I'm like, started to like slow down my backpack strap broke luckily because i thought my shoulder was going to break and then yeah it started to slow down and it started to compact and i was like oh shit and i'm trying to swim and fight and wriggle and i'm completely under and as it started to compact it started to lift my feet up because i'm attached to my board and then it yeah. pulled my body down so i'm like upside down and i just force my body forward and I grab behind my legs. And as it starts to compact, I throw myself back and forward, back and forward, back and forward. And I made this little tiny air pocket and I shoved my arm up and my wrist went out of the snow. So I had this little tiny hole and I was completely buried and I had like a one and a half inch, but it was like concrete as the, all the air comes out of the snow. And yeah, I'm like, no glove on like waving my hand and now i i have snow compacted in my eyeballs in my ears in my face i can't see I, my heart started beating like a million miles an hour i realizing oh shit you're actually buried mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i threw up threw up on myself like and, and i was upside down so it basically came back to me and i'd like spit it all out and then i i couldn't with my other hand, get the snow out of my eyes. So I started blinking my eyes and like ice balls are coming out of my eyes. And the whole time I'm just waving my hand, hoping someone can see me. Yeah. And the next thing you know, I hear someone, fuck, fuck. They're like, he's down here. (laughs) All of a sudden the guy starts digging with his ski with just his ski. And it was the guy menace. And he's like, dude, I got you. I got you. Are you all right? I'm And I'm like throwing up and, he started to dig me and then he cleared around my face, my arm. And I like got the snow out of my eyes and I could barely see him. And it was all weird, like a dream. And I'm just like, fuck. And he's like, dude, let me get you out of here. And he used his ski and, and then here comes Jerry down there and gets his shovel and they like dig me out. And I was like, fuck man, that was gnarly. And yeah. So I was kind of scared to ride down the rest. of Yeah. It was super gnarly. And I rode down to the bottom and, the helicopter landed on the road and they're just like, fuck dude, let me just fly you to town. Like you need to go straight to the bar. Oh my and gosh. Then Jerry's like, and Jerry's all, 
we need to go back up there. And I'm all, back up there? He's all, yeah, you going to snowboard tomorrow? I'm like, oh, I don't know, dude. He's all, if you don't go back up there right now, you may never go back again. So we literally pulled, Menace had like a flask. It took a shot of whiskey, got back on the helicopter, and we flew out to the top to go like check up the a- a- avalanche. And he figured, already avalanche, we'll just ride right to where it already <laughs> rode. So we... We rode down, it fractured above the slide, and we're like, holy shit, it was like five and a half feet deep. And then Jeez. we you know, rode under that, and it was like a super hard layer, and got down, and then they flew me into town, and I remember getting down there and just going, fuck, dude, straight to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys know that avalanches were dangerous, or did you guys just not care? Well, we knew they were dangerous, but like, it seemed like, like your dad was like, Scott's always like, dude, I'm telling you, I came up here because the news said they got like 30 feet of snow and came up to Valdez. And I was like, dude, it's so close to the ocean. It must just stick better because there was no avalanche in those slides for a bunch of years. And okay, so we just thought that maybe it was like the perfect scenario where everything just stuck. Yeah. And bonded perfectly. And we were mostly dealing with like surface sloughs and small things. And it wasn't until a couple of years later where, you know, some big things like that happened. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, 2000, that was the worst year. Uh, I was riding with Doug Coombs and Julie Zell and uh, all the, we were up on a, uh, I think we we're, I forget where, Rip and Ridge. And uh, I rode down about halfway and just stopped and radioed to the top. And I said, hey, man, I just got like a boomph sound and I'm hitting like a hard, crusty layer and it just slabbed on me. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I, I don't feel good. Like, I actually think I don't know what to do right now. And Doug's like, we're going to get an upper pickup. And he's all, you, honestly, you should just like hike back up here. And I'm like, that's going to take like an hour. Mm-hmm. And he's all, I wouldn't ride any further. He's, I just hike back up. So I was like, fuck. So I started hiking. All of a sudden the radio blows up and it was like, avalanche, emergency. We got to need a thing. We got three people buried. Avalanche, avalanche. Mm-hmm. And like, there was like every operation. And that was a year. There was a lot of, lot of helicopters up there that year. And Dean had one running. ABA had one. Uh, rendezvous doug uh valdez heli ski guides and there were multiple burials uh multiple broken bones maybe a couple deaths even Mm, and the whole they had called an emergency meeting at the sana that night and that's when you know doug like literally made the decision that he's going to call the helicopter companies and tell them it's completely unsafe to be up here and we know we got these giant lease payments we have to pay but they want to they'll take them back maybe if it's an emergency and they shut down all the operations that year and that was the first time in your experience that that happened yeah like really bad and saw you know you know several people passed in that uh thing and a couple broken femurs and backs and things and and then there was like a crazy exodus of everyone leaving. And from being there before, I was like, oh, it always heals up. Like, I'm here for a month. Like, well, I always came up for a month. And mm-hmm. and I was like, Scott's like, I'm out of here. I'm going back to town. And, and I was like, well, I'm just going to hang. 
and my friend Jeff like went to go get on the phone. There's like the only pay phone up in Valdez. There's like up at the pass, there's like a line of people and then in town and then the big storm hit, no one could leave. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck, I'm just going to stay. If no one can leave, I might as well stay. So then it was like 12 days. And when it healed up, we went, we went straight back out there and it was like, uh, Mark Newcomb and Doug went, I think out to like the Worthington glacier and Theo and some other people went up like Odyssey or no, they went up, uh, like what's that i forget uh up by like python okay and then we we went up we actually went up we hiked up the backside where the cat went and we went up to the top odyssey went up to goodwills where goodwill jumped this like 100 foot cliff one year and i'm all let's go up here and we all made it and lived through that day and met at the Sena of that night and there was only about seven people left and uh it was uh it all the avalanches happened before new year's or sorry before uh before april i think it was that was right at the beginning of april but we basically called it 2000 and a was over and then doug's like 2000 and b we're hiking and then the next day he's like dude i bet i could get the helicopters back out here and he got one helicopter back out and we flew straight up to diamond and uh, the original deal was to go get the radio uh, the, uh, the relay and bring it back. Okay. And then Doug's like, well, we might as well go up there and ride it. And mm-hmm. I'm well, after the biggest avalanches in the history of LTC. He's like, I think it's healed. Like we were out there. We saw it. Okay. Okay. And we went up and we did, we did the East side, the East face of diamond, which was really insane, like a uh, rugged, you know, exposure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we got the, the East face of diamond. And then there'd been a, earthquake up on the north face of diamond ripped out all the ice so we he's all let's go check out that we did the north face of diamond and then we did the west face of diamond so we ended up doing five runs on diamond after the biggest avalanches in the history (laughs) did you get a sense um maybe you maybe the other guys or maybe all of you that this was the beginning of the end of that era of $15, $20, $25 helis and just being out there and riding whatever you wanted. Oh yeah. That's why I went every year because I thought like, okay, there's going to come a point in time when a, my body might not be able to do it or two that they might not even allow us to do this anymore. And okay, um, they started saying there were areas that were closed because of the national park and only Dean Cummins could fly there. And, he wasn't even flying in certain areas because of that. And then the prices went from like 15 to 25 to 35 to then like 50, then to 75. And then to like by 2000 or so, I think they were up around like 90 or 120 or something. And okay. So I just kept coming every year because I was like, yeah, it's as long as I can do this, I'm going to keep. So I went from 94 to 2010 every year but one Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think 98 was the only year i missed yeah it was awesome but uh the coolest thing was probably the coolest thing we ever did was i was riding with julie zell a bunch and after she kind of retired from competing would just go up to free ride and uh me and julie and doug coombs and mark newcomb were riding out 
in a uh, hatchet land and uh where mike hatchet used to like to do a lot of filming and mm -hmm. uh we were up there with like uh freddie calbermont and then uh uh john jackson and couple other people and then those guys were gonna go film with tgr and uh tim manning and stuff and and we decided to go just take our own little free day and doug's like hey i've been looking at that that pencil coulard he's like me and nukem roped up and rappelled down through there and it's doable it's like this little crack mm -hmm. so we're like no way so you got you guys want to go first to scent that he's like you and we're all, yeah, let's go fucking hit that. I, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And he's all, no, you rode that sideline one time. And <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure where you're talking about. And then we went over there and I'm like, oh, that fucking little crack, dude. That thing goes. He's all, yeah, that goes. He's all, oh, yeah, didn't you call it pencil coulard? He's all, yeah, let's do it. So we landed up there and then Newcomb's like, I don't know, dude. I don't know. And then Doug's <laughs> like, I'm all, you want to go first, Doug? Like, you're the you're the man. He's like, I already repelled through it, but like, why don't you do it on a snowboard? That way it'll be not just a first descent by a skier. He's all be a first descent by a snowboard. He's like, yeah. So, um, he's like, yeah, just radio us when you go through, like tell us what, what to look for. And I thing was like five to 20 feet wide at the top. Mm -hmm. And as I went down, I, I just pretty fast line, and I started to really pick up some speed. And then I'm like, fuck, dude, it gets really narrow. It was like five feet wide. And then it went to like three feet wide. And there was like a little mm -hmm. piece of ice on the side. I, I tried to like check my speed there. And I'm like, no way. I just got to point it. And I pointed it through the whole thing, a thousand feet long or so. And came flying out 70 miles an hour or 75 or something at the bottom. And blasted a couple powder turns, pulled off to the side and radioed up. And I'm like yeah go next julie like <laughs> julie you go next <laughs> and she's like that look crazy she's like how is it i'm all it's about three feet wide at one point so but just point it and i said you can check your speed like right before you go through the main chute but you're gonna be just fucking flying and <laughs> she went like a falling leaf through there at the top part to kind of suss it out and then it started to slough and she went for it yeah and then doug went next and then newcomb and uh we we're all like no way and so he's like don't tell anyone that that's that's doable so then years later julie hit me up is like you've seen uh on youtube it says the greatest ski line ever and it was cody townsend did it and i heard okay. that uh travis i heard travis rice had had snowboarded it the like two years before yeah and then cody townsend did it i guess it's like the most watched youtube ski video five million people or something and and uh it was crazy i was actually the first you know a surfer from socal <laughs> first one to ride that and get the first descent that's awesome uh, but we didn't have you know back in those years like especially with your dad we didn't film anything you know we were just free riding for the glory and the yeah the story so it was pretty awesome Something my dad said when I had him on the podcast years ago was that he and Jay started borderline so that they could snowboard more. Do you feel like that was also true for you and surfing and snowboarding with your shop? Oh yeah, for sure. My, my business model was I, 
I told my parents, I said, I'm going to open a shop. I got like $12,000. <laughs> I'm going to get this little store. I'm going to okay. make my own skateboards, make my own surfboards. I said, eventually I'm going to start making my own snowboards. Mm -hmm. And I hand shaped about 4,500 surfboards. I made thousands and thousands of skateboards. And then I probably made about 1,500 uh, snowboards with LibTech. But my business plan was to make enough money to be able to go to the North Shore and surf every winter for like a month people were like well how are you going to do that i'm like well i'll get a manager or i'll just close mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the first year i i just closed for a couple of weeks and went really? to the north shore and and then uh as snowboarding became big i was like well valdez is like the at first i thought it was like switzerland or chamonix and i went to those places and it was super awesome but when you get to alaska you're like it's like europe with no chairlifts and gondolas instead of having a okay. hundred chairlifts and 10 gondolas you have nothing but the your your uh, snowshoes or your snowmobile mm -hmm. or the helicopter so i was like scott is like the north shore and so i knew like right away that i was like you know, we we're definitely pioneering something that was truly special and it would enable me to sell snowboards so i could go snowboarding and i used to, me and him had a joke. We'd always tell our employees, I got a board meeting because <laughs> we're going to go on your snowboard or surfboard. <laughs> yeah. And you started IG Boarding Shop in 1986 after getting back home from a trip to the North Shore of, North Shore of Oahu. Was there something about that trip that motivated you to get serious about opening up your own shop? Yeah, I kind of, when I went there, I thought, you know, I, I'd been competing in contests and I thought I was, you know, hotshot surfer and rode big waves and all that. And I realized that no one was really getting paid to ride big waves back then. And it was more about like doing little tricks and small waves and kind of having the right look. And I was making surfboards at the time. So I thought, well, instead of trying to be in the contests and maybe scraping by, Maybe I'll just make surfboards for all these people that I knew mm -hmm. and I'll open my own little factory store, which then blossomed into the full retail store. And that kind of triggered me to like, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset kicked in of, you know, instead of, uh, you know, being sponsored and being relying on everyone, I could make my own money. Mm -hmm. And I kept my sponsors, you know, even into my mid forties, um, just to basically get the necessities of snowboards and gear with Quicksilver and later Volcom and rode for O'Neill wetsuits and electric sunglasses and companies like that. But uh, definitely it was. I remember your dad saying that specifically. He's like, dude, we're like two peas in a pod. He's all, <laughs> First time I snowboarded, I'm like, I got to sell these things. That way I can get more people to go with me and then he's all and then i can make money off of all of them and then they can work for me because they'll need a job and then i can go surfing <laughs> and snowboarding yeah <laughs> and something that i read that i found really interesting is that your grandpa he owned a shop and that's what inspired you to start your own surf shop yeah it really did is uh my my mom was a hundred percent Sicilian and my grandparents were immigrants from Sicily and my grandfather, you know, only made it to like the eighth grade. Okay. And, uh, he, uh, he started up a barber shop 
at a real young age. And then he rolled that into like, okay, well, this is going to take my hands and skills and work. I'm crafty as all, but if I could like buy something and sell it, maybe I don't have to like use my hands. But so he became a butcher Hmm. and decided he could like buy the meat. So he opened a butcher shop. And when I was a kid, I used to go to the butcher shop, which was in New York city with my parents and in downtown the, in the, in Brooklyn, Mm-hmm. in the Bronx and a A1 meat market he called it and he ended up like really catering and had a real personality and catering to like a bunch of the like sports team athletes and uh you know executives and he was just a you know poor Italian immigrant and uh I would be all okay grandpa what do you want me to do and he's like well when the people come he's all you slice up the salami Mm-hmm. He's all, you like to eat that salami? He's all, you eat a piece, slice up the salami, eat a little piece, ask the people they want to try the dry salami that you like. Tell them how much you like it. He's all, they'll probably buy some. Yeah. And then I'd be all, you want me to sell all these steaks? You got all these, you know, prime, whatever, T-bones right here. He's all, no, no, no. He's like, I only have like, like eight of those left. He's all, those will sell themselves. He's all, we have a lot of ribeye. We need to sell ribeye today. Yeah. And I said, well, why is there only three ribeyes in the case. He's all, that makes it look like there's not too many left. And he's on, tell him, oh, you want two steaks? Get the ribeye. The ribeye is the best. We'll sell ribeye all day. Yeah. So he showed me that kind of like uh, influencing people by like a sense of like uh, what you like and what you taste and the appearance and like using it to, um, you know, sell someone a good quality product but at the same time, moving your inventory so that you can make a profit. Mm-hmm. And I was just amazed at that. And, uh, you know, started at a young age um, selling seeds originally. And then later on making my own skateboards. And then like 14 making skateboards, 16 years old making surfboards. Mm-hmm. I opened my shop when I was 20 years old. So it was uh, pretty uh, different from today's standards of how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. A dream and a prayer back then. And when you got back from that trip from the North shore, were you thinking about your grandpa's store? Were you thinking like, you know, you had seen how he sold stuff, you know, how, how he was able to be this great salesman with these kind of unique ideas for the time and you're like, I think I could do that with surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding. Yeah, exactly. So what I did is I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to base it around me making surfboards. So I'll make like 12 surfboards. I was on a very limited budget. So I was like, okay, I've got a, a little bit of money. I can max out my credit card, get a little bit of money there. My dad's like, I'll loan you $3,000 or something of that sort. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so I got about $12,000. Can I really open? Everyone told me I couldn't do it. And I was like, well, that fueled me more to do it. So I started mm-hmm. to think, well, like my grandpa said, you know, you really only, you're trying to sell two steaks. You only need two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to have a hundred steaks. So I basically, when I got the, the skateboards, I got like a very, I built racks that look like I could hold, you know, say 50, but I only put 12 up there. Okay. And then I, I would, I wanted like different brand trucks say, so I'd have one pair of silver independent, one pair of black, 
like tracker, one pair of like white thunders. So I had the colors, the people, but they, that was it. Mm -hmm. And then in wheels and in bearings, I had just the bare minimum. And I figured as I sold it all, I would just roll it into more product. So I literally had like maybe two or three board bags, like one leash of each size. You know, I could make up about 12 skateboards. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I just need to do like, you know, $15,000 a month. And that's going to cover my rent and my electricity and, and, uh, you know, the different bills I was going to have. And I ended up doing the amount I needed to do the first month, the first day. Really? I sold okay. almost every surfboard in the store. I sold like half the skateboards. I made a big hype over the grand opening. Yeah. And some of the people that came on the first day, my good friend, Mike O'Reilly, he came in on the first day and with his dad and his dad was a lot like my grandfather. And, uh, his dad really saw what I had going on and wanted to support it. And to this day, me and Mike are still really good friends. That's awesome. And your shop, it closed in 2011 after being in business for 25 years. What eventually happened to it? Um, basically, the whole industry started to get to be uh, kind of like a sellout. Is uh, we had some of the we had the original you know website where I basically had a video player pre YouTube you could comment on and had all our team riders and I had the snowboards and the glasses and the shoes. So what started to happen was, is the shoe companies started to sell to these big warehouses and do an online sales with free tax and discounting. And then the, the surf companies started to sell to like TJ Maxx and Nordstrom's and Tilly's. And mm -hmm. uh, it even trickled into Alaska where there was all of a sudden, you know, all these stores, um, you know, in the same shopping center, that borderline was all of a sudden there's like seven stores selling Quicksilver and, mm -hmm, you know, there's mm -hmm. the ski shop down the road selling Burton. So in the early days, I was the first shop that dropped Burton. You know, I said, I'm not going to sell Burton. Okay. And then, uh, later on Burton became the biggest brand. So I had to get it back and kind of a funny story in itself, but as the recession started to happen as the companies were feeling the lost sales. So they just started opening more and more and more distribution, more and more and more websites. And the next thing you know, in my area, in a 15 mile area, I was originally the only one that sold say LibTech or Volcom for like 60 miles. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden in 15 miles, there was like 20 stores that sold Volcom or Quicksilver mm -hmm. and LibTech was in every LibTech maybe held out longer than most of the other brands, but later LibTech was forced to sell to Quicksilver. Okay. Which then opened up more distribution and the sales rep is a real good friend of mine, Bob Stanislaus, lifelong friend. Um, and he fought them over, you know, don't sell the ski shops, don't sell the sporting goods stores, but eventually they sold the sport chalets and the sports authority and Dick's sporting goods. And ironically, when I realized after losing money for five years, I was going to have to basically close up is now to this day, there's no like sports authorities out of business, sports chalets mm -hmm. out of business. Dick's doesn't even sell snowboards anymore. And 
Mm-hmm. But for me, it was a time to pivot and move on with something else that would be new and exciting, like the early days of snowboarding was for me. Yeah. What was that next day like after the shop was all packed up and, you know, you're left with your thoughts, your memories? Were you stewing in all that? Or do you have the mentality of what's next? Yeah, I kind of, you know, I was a little sad, but it was such a long time coming of seeing the sales declining and, you know, real estate was declining. The banks were closing the whole world, all these big chains from like, you know, Circuit City and I can't remember all the companies, but like just tons of big national chains were closing. And then the next thing, you know, the banks were closing. Mm -hmm. So the writing was on its wall that, the you know, the world was in trouble everything's been sold out to corporations, you know, uh, no tax, free shipping, discounting. I needed to pivot. So it was a a wild thought. But for me as a surfer and skateboarder and snowboarder, I knew a lot of people, uh, you know, smoked cannabis. Mm -hmm. And even myself, I kind of wasn't a big uh, smoker, but at at a young age, you know, I, I planted seeds up in the hills and uh, grew some plants. And I always had the green thumb of gardening. My mom had a big garden and my family was into growing fruits and vegetables. And and uh, I was like, you know what, if it gets really bad, I've got friends in Northern California that always tell me they're grow- going up there to plant lettuce <laughs> or to trim lettuce. I know what they're doing. They're growing weed. Yeah. And I said, and you know, money doesn't grow on trees, right? It grows on small little plants, bushes. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I, I, I had seeds of the original couple of original strains and I knew people that were into it. And I had a good friend with an uncle up there that had a big property and yeah, uh, his hardwood flooring business was suffering and my surf shops were closing. And I just told my family, like, I, I really like to stay and grip tape skateboards the rest of my life and make surfboards, but it's kind of over. I need to pivot into the new frontier in it mm-hmm. as much as, uh, you know, I don't like the, the term green rushing. I got, you know, basically that itch like the gold rushers where I said, okay, I'm just going to go up North and I'm going to grow, grow cannabis. But what mm-hmm. I did, I'd never been in trouble or done anything illegal in my life as I, I partnered with a dispensary okay. and the law was the only uh, large scale medical cannabis could be grown was if you were commercially growing for a dispensary. So I, I did, I took that route. And for me, what really interests me, which gra- which caught a hold of me was how every plant was different. Every strain was different, the colors, the leaf structure, the smell. Mm-hmm. So I started, I realized there's male plants that create pollen everyone kills those and there's female plants that creates flower and everyone wants those. But if I cross the male to the female, I could create something new. And my friend that got me up there in the first place told me that I've taken the wrong path and no one's ever, you know, created anything that was worth a damn. Like you should just stick with the OG strains. And, and I was like, well, I'm going to grow some, OG crosses or I'm going to grow some different ones. And I started really getting things that looked really unique. Mm -hmm. And then the high was different 
And at that point in time, I started smoking a lot more because I was like feeling that it wasn't just like this couch lock, put you to sleep and eat potato chips. It was like this energetic high. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I started to learn about the terpenes and the flavors, flavonoids in the plant that they have medicinal values working with this dispensary that I was working with. And I basically then the next year I, I bought my own farm with them and, uh, had some nice big heated greenhouses. I ran year round up in Humboldt County, Northern California. And basically then I was there for the next like 14 years. Yeah. Last month you made this post about surfing and what it means to you. You said the process of pivoting in life, and trusting your instincts and having the faith to continue to look forward is what truly brings happiness. How often do you trust yourself to make the right decisions in surfing and snowboarding in life? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because, uh, the unique thing with surfing is you, you have to trust your own judgment from the time you go to sleep because you're thinking like, Oh, the way the weather is, the way the ocean is, the tide, the wind, the swell, you're like thinking you have to be optimistic all the time. So I, okay. I pride myself in, in trying to be an eternal optimist. And what happens is, is you have the dream that like tomorrow is going to be a perfect day again. Mm -hmm. So you got to wake up early, usually get down to the beach and then, dream and find the place that you think all the conditions are right. And then the, the fact is, is when you decide to paddle out, sometimes the waves are pumping, 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 you paddle out in between a set, you get out there, the ocean's flat and you're just staring out into the middle of the ocean mm -hmm. <laughs> with this dream that this perfect wave is going to come right to you where you're okay. sitting at that location and you're going to drop in and get barreled and come out. So having that kind of like, like hope or belief or faith that uh, it's going to happen. It, it enables you to be optimistic mm -hmm. and what happens uh, it's the same with snowboarding, you know, like trying to hunt down the powder days, um, focusing to make that trick. You're going to, you know, learn to ride switch or pull a switch 540 or something. You have to like visualize it. Mm -hmm and believe. And then when, you know, tragedies happen in your life, everyone gets their moment of, of, uh, you know, sadness or depression. Recently, my mom passed away and oh, I'm that sorry was to hear rough that. with uh, cancer and all that. And I was by her side for basically a year and five months straight every day. Mm -hmm. Um, but what happened during that, I was kind of like, okay, well, what's the path forward is, you know, even in cannabis, it starts getting saturated and corporations and, and this and that. So I, I try to think of like, as an explorer type mentality of like, I want to explore other options, you know, other markets, mm -hmm. uh, maybe other places, countries. So it creates this whole new, almost like exploration, being open to trying to take change as a positive, um, you know, instead of a change as a negative. Mm hmm. Because mm -hmm. some people can do the same thing their whole life. I just definitely am not that person. I, I need to kind of pivot, mm -hmm. change, have new excitement. 
And yeah, it's been working that way pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Well, Ig, those are all my questions. This was awesome. I love hearing stories about those early days of snowboarding, of surfing, about Valdez, about surfing in Alaska, you know, all of it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It brings back a lot of really good memories. The Liska family, legend in Alaska. Me and Scott have been real nice, close personal friends for a long time, and I'm probably going to have to join him down in Mexico one of these days. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>